conversation, but I know he's, he's confident. Uh, are you confident? You feeling good? How are you, buddy? You look older than the last time I saw you. Riley turned 15 just a few, uh, just a few days ago, so way to go. Good job turning 15. Uh, it did. Yeah, you worked hard for it. I want to, uh, I want to play a little game with you uh, that involves these dice. Four dice right here. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to, um, to take all four dice and give them a roll. And if you're able to land in one roll on a 24, a total of 24, I'm going to give you this prize right here. Pastor Rick and I uh, went to California this week, and I stopped at the ESPN Zone in downtown Disney, and I got you something that I think you'll like. And even if you don't, you know, the bag's kind of cool. You can re-gift what's inside of it. I'll never know. Uh, but I'm going to give you the prize if you can get a 24 in one roll. Just out of curiosity, do you have any idea what your odds of getting it in one roll are? There you go. What do you think? Right, there's only one way to get it, all sixes. Take your best guess. That's complicated math. One in how many would you say? It's, well, that's close. It's actually one in 1,296. Uh, so uh, I'd say, you know, you got a chance. More likely this than Powerball. So, you know, somebody wins Powerball. So maybe this will be your day. So uh, go ahead. Wait, you got to roll all four at once or it doesn't count. So, whoa, 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 whoa. All right. All right. Go for it, brother. Let's see what you get. Okay, you got one six. Um, I just want to like preemptively, or just as an aside, say thank you for not getting a 24 because that would have really screwed up my, uh, <laughs> my word picture. You didn't win the prize, but uh, I was at ESPN Zone this last week and I got you something for your birthday. <laughs> so happy birthday and thank you for, uh, for playing along right there, brother. I appreciate that. Uh, okay, so let me tell you a little story. When my daughter Hannah was five years old, I think she was about five years old, I asked her this question, just to see what she would say. I asked her, eh, when was God born? And I was expecting her to say, of course, well, Father, God is eternal, beginning and the end, Alpha and Omega. He has no beginning or end. He's always been. Duh, you should know that. You're a pastor. That's what I was expecting. Uh, however, what she said immediately was, about 5,000 years ago, in July, <laughs> That, that was her answer. I have no idea where that came from. I didn't teach her that. I hope that's obvious that I didn't teach her that. Uh, I'm assuming you didn't teach her that. I don't know where that came from, but somehow, like in her five-year-old mind, she just knew. Like She just came right out with it, confidently, out loud, about 5,000 years ago in July. Now, I give you these two illustrations because in her mind, something was informing her view of God. Like something told her it was 5,000 years ago in July. It could have been just her five-year-old perspective of the world. It could have been something she saw on a cartoon and she just like randomly jammed them together. I don't know what it was, but something was informing her view of God. And that's true for all of us. Something will inform our view of God. Now, here's, here's a reality, though. Building our view of God on the opinions of others or building it on just what we think seems like a good idea, or even building our view of God on, 
uh, you know, the combination of those things is a monumental roll of the dice, is it not? I mean, that's really taking a chance uh, that you're going to be right. So that's why I asked the question, what is it that's informed your view of God? What, what are the things that have for, informed your view of God? Who? Your, your view is informed by something. That's true of each of us. But we each have to choose who or what will inform our view of God. So today I hope you'll rep- wrestle with these two questions. One is, is the Bible an authority in my life? In the last five weeks as we've been going through the Divine Mentor, we've, we've talked about the authority of the Bible. And so we won't be able to rehash all of that today. But, but it's a yes or no question. Is the Bible the authority, is it an authority in your life? And if the answer is yes, then what am I or what will I do about it is sort of a logical follow-up question. So, so those two things, is the Bible my authority and what will I do about it or what am I doing about it? Now, if you've been around society for you know, any length of time, if you've been paying attention, uh, I think we could probably all identify the fact that we kind of live in this age of I guess what I would call intellectual arrogance. Uh, I kind of, what I mean by that, I think every great society goes through that. We live in this time when we kind of have this view that like, we know more and we're more right than every other society that's ever been. Uh, that's, they call that ethnocentrism. Uh, I don't even know why I know that, but, uh, but just about every society kind of has that perspective, right? Like our way of life is superior. Our view is superior. Now, if we're talking... Like just in terms of maybe technological advancement, I guess you could say that's true. But the truth about our advancements is we're not necessarily smarter. It's just that we started later, right? Other people, somebody else discovered the wheel a long time ago so that we could build on everything that came after that. Uh, we're not necessarily smarter. We just built upon it. And future generations will take our ideas and they'll build on it and they'll say, man, we're way smarter than those people. What was with those silly little gadgets they used to talk on? Uh, why don't they just, why didn't they just teleport like we do? Uh, future generations will come along and do greater things and they'll view themselves as being intellectually superior to us. But the truth is, if you just, in your mind, to whatever degree you're familiar with uh, the history of humanity, kind of scroll back, a lot of the same issues have pretty much always existed. Especially when it comes to social issues. A lot of the ones that are really popular today uh, have been around forever. And you just think about like social oppression. That's been happening for as long as more than one people group have been in close proximity to each other. The stronger one has been oppressing the, the weaker one. That's not new. You might have heard the phrase or used the phrase, there's nothing new under the sun. Really smart guy came up with that. It's in the Bible in Ecclesiastes. Solomon, said to be the wisest man who ever lived. He said that a long time ago, and it's still true. People and their opinions will come and go. You and I will come and go. Our generation will come and go, no matter how advanced or enlightened we are. But about 2,600 years ago, there was a guy named Isaiah. Uh, he was a prophet. Jesus quoted Isaiah. Isaiah lived about between six and 700 years before Jesus. And Jesus quoted Isaiah all the time. Uh, it's been now about 2,600 years since Isaiah lived. And this is what he said in Isaiah 40, verse 7. He said, The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So he says essentially, people will come and go. You and I will come and go. Everyone who's ever lived, that will be the case. Uh, But the word of the Lord stands forever. So if we just examine the last 2,600 years since he said that, doesn't 
Doesn't that hold up? This is in wider circulation and more influence right now than it's ever been in the history of the world. Uh, The gospel in many places of the world is expanding exponentially, especially in the global south. Uh, The word of God continues to thrive while we continue to, to come and go. It seems that what Isaiah said is true. People and their opinions have a pretty short lifespan, but the word of God is only growing. It goes on forever. Uh, so that's really what I want to drill down on a little bit today is the importance of the words of God, the things he's said. Uh, I remember when I was in college, there was, uh, there was a certain people group, which basically included almost all of my professors. They kind of belonged to this social circle of people who consider Christians to be intellectual lightweights. Uh, I don't want to say stupid, but that's kind of how they, how they felt about it. They consider Christians to be intellectual lightweights in favor of a non-theistic worldview. Like, all there is is what I can see, a you know, materialistic kind of, kind of view. And what's, what's ironic about that is that uh, the idea of atheism is kind of a, it's kind of a played-out song in our society. Uh, there will always be people who say, there is no God, I only believe in the natural world. But what we're seeing in our society over the last 15, 20 years is that spirituality is actually on the rise pretty significantly. Uh, not necessarily Christian spirituality, but spirituality in general. And maybe, maybe you see that, you know, especially you know, if you're maybe 40, 50, 60, you've kind of been hanging around this earth for a little while. You might have noticed, like, people have just gotten into all kinds of kooky spiritual stuff. Like, it's just it's all over the place. Uh, and so we'll say things um, like, I see God in nature. Now, now I agree with that. Uh, I see God in nature. God's creation is amazing. Uh, Some people will say, I see God in art. That might be an example. I am artistically illiterate. Uh, I don't really see anything in art, but if you're an artist, you you probably do. Uh, My stick figures are illegible. That's that's how bad it is for me. Uh, But for some people, they see God in various forms of art. Some people will say, I see God in children. Now, I personally sometimes see Satan in children. That was a bad joke. I shouldn't have said that. It's out there now, though. Uh, No. Uh, Yes to all of those. I agree with those. I think you can see God in those things and in many, many other things. I think you can see God in those ways. But I want to just show you in our time that we have together um, a couple different stories in the Bible that I think demonstrate really clearly the importance of God's words, the things God has said to us, the importance of his words, not just, uh, not just theoretical spirituality, but rather demonstrations of the fact that God has intended to use his word, the Bible, the things he has said, as the primary mechanism for working blessing into your life. Uh, so, so that's what I want to accomplish in the next few minutes. And I want to look at the life of a guy named Elijah. So if you're reading along, we'll be in 1 Kings 19 is where we're going to go. Uh, I will, I'll read some of the story out loud to you, but, but you've got to get some of the context uh, for Elijah. He lived in a very strange time. Uh, he lived in what's known as the time of the kings. So, you know, initially God wanted to be the king of his people, and that wasn't good enough for them. And uh, he would speak to them through uh, the priest to kind of govern over them. But they wanted a king. They want, we want a king, like... You have God, but you want a king. Like, just that is silly. 
but nonetheless, they wanted to be like all the other countries. So God gives them a king. And if you have read through the history of the time, the period of the kings, uh, you know they got some real doozies in there. So Isaiah lived, uh, sorry, Elijah lived during the time when there was a king named Ahab. And he was just a messed up guy. He was a, he was a wicked king. Uh, but worse than that, perhaps his biggest failure is that he was married to a woman named Jezebel. Now, I say the name Jezebel, and you're like, I've noticed that nobody really names their daughter Jezebel anymore. Uh, this is that Jezebel. Like, this is the original Jezebel. She's the reason that you don't hear that name anymore. And so what she was doing as the queen during the time of Elijah was uh, she was basically trying to take this idol named Baal and make the worship of Baal a national religion. She, she was trying to essentially, uh, not secularize, but basically cut off uh, the, uh, the relationship that the Israelites had had with God forever in favor of this idol, Baal. And one of the things that she had done is she had been executing the prophets, people like Elijah. He was, he was one of them. Now, so that's what's happening kind of culturally. The other thing you have to know so that you can trust Elijah is what it means to be a prophet in their day. So, you know, let's just say hypothetically in our day, Micah said, hey, I'm a prophet, and God told me that this is going to happen. Next Thursday, it's going to rain nacho cheese. And it didn't happen, because that's probably not going to happen. What would we all do? We'd all think, yeah, that guy was a kook, and then we'd go on with our lives, right? In Elijah's day, if you claimed to be a prophet, and what you said didn't happen, if you said, God told me that this is going to happen, and it didn't happen, they would kill you. I mean, they would like, literally pummel you with rocks until you were dead. That was their recourse. Uh, so it wasn't the kind of thing that you just said like, for attention. It wasn't the kind of thing that you just said, I'm having this emotional, spiritual experience, and I'm going to tell everybody I'm a prophet. Uh, like, you didn't take chances on it. Now, God does speak to and through people that way, but it wasn't treated flippantly. If you thought you were a prophet, you had to be sure before you went public. And so that was, that's what was happening with Elijah. And he lives under this reign uh, of Jezebel. And so uh, she's, she's extremely wicked. And what happens to Elijah is that God's prompting, he decides that it's time for him and his God to have a showdown with Baal and his prophets. So he calls them by the hundreds. He says, hey, let's go out to the mountainside and we're going to have a little showdown. We're going to see whose God really is God. And that happens in 1 Kings chapter 18. God shows up miraculously and destroys basically everything and shows himself to be the real God. It's an awesome story. You should read it. But where I want to pick it up is in the first verse of chapter 19. This is where Jezebel finds out about what just happened uh, to all of her prophets and how Elijah embarrassed them on the mountain. So, uh, so in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1, I'll just read it out loud. This is what it says. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. She could have just said, I'm going to kill you, or she could have just killed him, but she decided to be really wordy, because apparently that's what they did. She says, You're a dead man. I'm coming for you. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah... He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. Now, Elijah doesn't have servants because he's rich, because he's wealthy or powerful. Um, he has basically an understudy because he's 
uh, a true prophet. People believe him to be a prophet, and so they're, they're following him. And really the demonstration there is he's telling his servant, you know what, you need to go your own way now. I'm, I'm going in the desert to die. I give up. Uh, I'm, I'm done with this. This is a, a disaster. <clears throat> uh, Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Interesting that, uh, just parenthetically, that God meets him in his desperation and provides what he needs. Uh, Not necessarily what he wants, but just provided for his basic need. Next sentence says, And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So Elijah runs for his life. He begs God for, for signs because he's come to this point of ultimate frustration, despair, you could say. He doesn't know what to do. Of course, he, he believes that God is capable of intervening in his situation, but he's lost hope because he's exhausted. Does that sound like a situation that you may have found yourself in at some point? God, you just have to show up and do something because I don't know what to do. I have to give up on this situation or this person because I just, I just don't know what to do. God, you're going to have to give me a sign because I can't make a move. Ever been paralyzed by indecision or despair, discouragement? That's where Elijah's at. The pressure, the stress, uh, the discouragement, maybe the depression, the hopelessness. It's brought him to the brink of really completely imploding. He's wishing for death. And he needs something from God. That's, That's where he's at. So what does God do? A violent wind an earthquake, a fire. He shows him these signs, these miraculous signs. Now, these signs certainly came from God, but what does it say? It says he's not in the signs. That's not where he was. How did he show up? In a whisper. Some translations, maybe yours say, in a still, small voice. That's where God shows up to Elijah. He presents himself to Elijah through his words. He speaks to Elijah. All along, Elijah did exactly what we do. He wanted God to show up in his circumstances. Change this situation. 
could be health, could be financial, could be my boss is such a jerk, I just can't go to that job again. God, you need to either give me a new job or kill him. I prefer number B, letter B, but you know, I'll take the new job if I have to. Uh, we want God to show up in our circumstances. I get that. I do that. That's exactly how I feel. But God shows up audibly. He speaks in his words, and he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah's response is so, uh, is so interesting, because what does he lead with? He says, God, I've been so zealous for you, dot, 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 and now I'm in this horrible situation. He basically says, I've done everything right, and this is how you repay me. God, I'm good people. Help me out here. That's, that's his response. Fix this. But God uses circumstantial intervention sometimes. Sometimes he does do miraculous things, but most often he uses his words to encourage us, to shape us, to strengthen us, to love us. Most often, that's how God is going to work in your life. We know that because it's latent throughout the scripture. So there's this woman who walks past my house every day. I think this is a good example of how this works. Uh, every morning, she walks past my house at about 7.10 a.m. I know it's 7.10 a.m. because I drop Mike off to get on the bus at about 7.05, and then I drive back home, and I see this woman walking by almost every day. It's right when I drive into the driveway. She's walking by. Um, she doesn't miss. Uh, and I know a lot of things about this woman from seeing her there every day. I know she's uh, maybe somewhere around 70 years old. Uh, I know that she's really fit because she walks at a pace I wouldn't be able to keep up at, with. I, would, I could jog alongside, but I couldn't walk that fast, uh, which is funny because she's like this tall. Uh, but she is, she's amazing. She's a blur when she goes by. I know that she has a black jacket and a white scarf because she wears them every day. I know that she apparently lives in my neighborhood somewhat close by. Uh, she is a person who's very committed to routines because she wears the same coat and the same scarf, and she walks by at the same time every day. And she walks down the street, past the front of our house, to our driveway, and then she crosses the street and then continues going. It's our driveway, every time, every day. She never misses. I actually kind of know a lot about this woman. Like, I'm kind of a creeper, I guess, in that regard. <laughs> but if you asked me, do you know her? I don't know her. Why don't I know her? Because we've never exchanged words. I've, I've said hello, and like, she's just, she's just doing her thing. Um, but we've never exchanged words. I don't know her. Now, what would happen if one day she stopped and for 60 seconds we chatted and exchanged a little bit of information about each other, and then the next day you asked me if I know her, what would I say? Yeah, I do know her. Now, there's degrees, right? The volume of words we exchange will decide how well we know each other, but what changed? We just exchanged a few words and we went from not knowing to knowing. Words are the difference between knowing and not knowing. Exchanging words is the difference between relationship and not relationship. That's how, that's how God works. Knowing each other is a matter of words. We have to exchange uh, communication in order for that to happen. And there's this story in the New Testament that is a little bit, uh, a little bit frightening because we can probably all see ourselves in it. Uh, but it also kind of gets to this, this heart of the matter. It's in Luke 16. Uh, we refer to it as the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, it's kind of this, it's, it's a, a parable, it's an illustrative story, it's not real, uh, but Jesus is using it to essentially just describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. So let me just read this one to you. It says, Jesus said, there was a rich man 
who was dressed in purple and fine linen and living in luxury every day. Uh, Purple was a, a symbol of affluence in their day. Not just everybody could get it. It was hard to make. So he was very wealthy. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. I have no idea why this next sentence is in there, but it says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. All right. So you get the picture. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Uh, in our context, we would say heaven. That's, you know, for this the whole theological thing, it was different because Jesus hadn't died on the cross and been risen just yet. But, uh, the angels came and carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not come also to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. So think about this story, right? This rich guy is, I don't know that it's consequential that he's necessarily rich, but, um, but he's in hell and he says, okay, I'm stuck here, but, but Abraham, send somebody to my brothers to warn them. Uh, because, and Abraham says, well, you know, they have the, they have the prophets, like they have the Old Testament, the Bible. Uh, they can read about it in there. And he says, no, 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 that won't work. They, they don't believe that. But if somebody goes back from the dead, Then they'll believe, then they'll repent, and they'll turn to God. And watch how Abraham replies in verse 31. Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Isn't that interesting? Abraham essentially says, you know what? They have the words of God in front of them, and if they won't believe that, they won't believe anything. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I like to think... I mean, if somebody like, rose from the dead, I'd be, I'd be pretty convinced by that. Uh, but Abraham says, you know what? If they don't believe the words of God, then they won't even believe that. If they don't believe God's words, they won't believe his signs either. It's through the use of words that we know each other, that we enter into relationship. It's how we learn how to love one another, how to care for one another. Uh, Anybody ever worked in a skilled trade? Anybody? We've got a few, a few people. You just considered yourself skilled. They're like, oh, you were a mechanic, or uh, you know how to sew something, or build something. All you with all your marketable skills. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't know anything about that. Um, I'll just make this example. My friend Joel right here is a journeyman sheet metal worker. Got that? Uh, Joel can build all kinds of cool stuff and do a bunch of things that uh, the manliest among us think, man, I wish I could do that kind of stuff. Uh, I guarantee you that Joel knows full well the difference between having the right tool for the job and making do with whatever's laying around. 
Yeah, right. Especially when you're someone like him who's a craftsman, you, you really value the right tool, right? Uh, now, for me, it's something totally trivial like golf. Like, I want to have my own golf clubs. I don't want to rent golf clubs. Uh, or Dan plays the bass, and he actually had to use someone else's bass today. But, you know, when you're used to it and it's your own, it's, it's different. It's the right tool for the job. I think we can kind of all get on board with, with the idea. Um, I don't really know what kind of tool someone like Joel might, might use, but I guarantee you the difference is immediately evident between the right tool and the wrong tool, or a good quality one and a cheap one. Going through life making do with what you have makes everything harder. I put a fence in our backyard a couple of years ago, and uh, I didn't want to go buy the post hole digger thing, but guess what I ended up doing after digging one hole by hand? I went and bought the post hole digging thing, because it's just more difficult when you don't have the right tool. Having the wrong tool for anything makes it more difficult. Having the wrong tools in life, just sort of making do with whatever you got, makes life harder. Just as an example, I mean, if, if you have friction in your marriage, just say, wouldn't it be better to have the wisdom of God as your tool as opposed to having the over-the-hedge wisdom of Bill, my neighbor, as my tool? Uh, Bill might be a good guy, but, just, but even if he is, like, wisdom of God, wisdom of Bill, that's, that's an easy one. The right tool will make all the difference. Uh, like when Ron goes on one of his 200-mile hikes that he does, I have no idea how you do it, it's amazing, he could theoretically, like, lock the truck and just like randomly wander through the woods until he comes to civilization again. Or he could use maps, GPS, markers along his trail to find his way back. Uh, the right tool makes all, makes all the difference, all of it. So I want to finish up our time together by reading from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, Ephesians. Uh, and he uses this word picture of a soldier's armor to uh, teach us how to gird ourselves against the many trials and temptations that are going to come our way. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, he refers to what we know of as, we refer to it as the armor of God. Uh, it's, it's just this imagery that he uses. Right at the end of the letter, he says, A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor, so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In the, in the book, in his book, The Divine Mentor, Pastor Wayne points out uh, something that's, that's interesting and it really serves as the big idea for today. In Paul's word picture of the armor of God, there's only one piece of offensive weaponry. Everything else is about standing stably where I am, not moving forward. And that one piece of offensive weaponry 
is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is our one piece of offensive weaponry. It's the one piece, the one mechanism God has given us to move forward in life. A way to avoid simply surviving and be able to thrive in the life that God has for us. It's His Word. A way to move forward in life even when times are difficult. It's a way for us to move off of the wounds of the past that might just keep us where we are. Uh, I think most of us can probably understand what that might be like. It's a way to resist the temptation to just go with the flow and conform what everybody else is doing and just let life pass us by. It's a way to move off of that. It's a way to resist intimidation. You ever really wanted to go for something? Just really wanted to go after it, but you, you kind of held back because you were intimidated by the situation, maybe the fear of failure or by some of the other people involved? The Word of God is our weapon. It's a way to overcome the paralysis of indecision. You ever come to a crossroads and just say, God, I don't know which way to go. It's a way to overcome that. It's a weapon that we can deploy to help us lay hold of God's will for our lives. The words of God. So, so why does that matter? I had, this, I had this revelation. I'm sure you all are way more mature than me. You've been there for a long time. But I just had this revelation this week. That God is going to do great things. That is not a question. History says that God is going to do great things. The question is whether or not I'm going to participate in those great things. The question before us as a church family is whether or not we'll be a part of those great things. Will we raise families that participate in what God is doing or survive? Will we start companies and work at companies that participate in what God is doing? Or will we just go through life? Will we show others what God is doing? Will we have marriages that point to the fact that God is doing good things? Will we have relationships among us that point to the goodness of God? Will we be a church that says, look what God is doing? It's not a question of whether or not he's going to do something. That much is sure. It's a question of whether or not we'll be involved. And his word really is our only offensive weapon. It's the way we take that ground. And so uh, each week for the last few weeks, uh, I've put sort of an actionable step out there if you've been involved. Uh, So we've done a couple different things. A few weeks ago, we read from the book of Proverbs uh, for five days each week uh, from one chapter of Proverbs. Uh, last week, we explored some parables in Matthew 13. And this week, I want to I just give you another actionable step. Uh, now, here's the deal. If it's true that God's word is the one offensive weapon, so to speak, if we're using the imagery, that God has given us, if, if this is God's primary mechanism for us to move forward in life, uh, that sounds kind of important that we lay hold of it, doesn't it? So I want to I give you the challenge to do this. And uh, in just a really bite-sized, actionable way, um, I've, created, I've got laid out what I call David's Five. Five Psalms, uh, beginning in Psalm 23, one for each day of the week, Monday through Friday. So beginning in 23, 24, 25, 26, and 27. Uh, so the challenge is for each day to start tomorrow with, with Psalm 23 and read one of those every week. Uh, now, if you're thinking to yourself, I don't, I don't like to read that much, um, all five of them probably fit on two pages in your Bible. So it's, it's not a significant amount of reading. It can definitely be done. So three steps. Each day to read one of those Psalms, take somewhere in the neighborhood of about 60 seconds to reflect on it, and then just make a note of what stood out to you, what you felt like God just impressed on you from that scripture. 
you write it down, you make a quick note in your phone. Um, but my encouragement is to take action because God's words make all the difference in our lives. History says this is the mechanism that God uses to work in our lives. So I'm gonna pray for one thing as we close. Uh, I'm gonna pray that God by his spirit would move on us to be enthusiastic about his word, to desire him in that way. Um, a few weeks ago, Karen talked about uh, how she's reached a point in her life where spending her time with God in, in God's word that way has become like food. Like I have to have, to have it. My soul feels empty, feels hungry without it. Uh, have you ever been really hungry? I've reached the age now where I kind of am starting to notice when I'm a little bit like lower on blood sugar. Um, so if you've ever been really hungry, how's your decision-making process when you're really hungry? Um, I've made some pretty dumb decisions, especially about what to eat when I'm really hungry. Um, your soul will do the same thing. So let's, let's feed that thing. Let's see what God will do. Lord.